Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we interview the award-winning and debut thriller writer, Megan Davis. Her book, The Messenger, tells the story of a son's journey to uncover the dark truth about his father's murder, and the story was influenced by Megan's experience of being a whistleblower. In this conversation with Megan, we talk about everything from using dual timelines to the essential elements of a psychological thriller. We discuss the importance of weaving conflict throughout the book, and she says that sometimes our personal relationship with conflict can influence how we are able to bring conflict to the page. We also talk about how she's learned to discern what feedback was useful for her and her experience of the publishing industry as a debut author. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Megan Davis. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month, we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the London Writer Salon, Megan. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So lovely to have you here. We're going to kick off with a question about your earlier years. I read somewhere that you said you'd wanted to be a writer when you were younger. And I'm just curious, what did that writing look like for you when you were younger? When I was younger, I kept a lot of diaries. I was kind of, I was always a bit of a nerd and I liked to sort of set myself sort of tasks. So I remember I had one diary and I wasn't allowed to go to bed until I'd sort of written a page in it. And so, you know, a lot of it was just ramblings, but but sometimes I'd find myself getting quite, you know, interested in a conversation or a description or something like that. So it was quite sort of granular stuff. It was very, I wouldn't say there were stories. It was more you know, just observations and and things that happened, that kind of thing that that kind of got me interested in writing. But I could never actually formulate a beginning, middle and an end for a long time. So, you know, I found that really difficult. And it looks like that you launched your career in law as a solicitor. What were your early career ambitions? Did you have goals for yourself, what you hoped to do when you grew up? Well, I think I always wanted to, um, always wanted to work in a creative environment but I didn't really know how that you know how that worked it was all quite scary I didn't know how you actually sort of made money in that world um I didn't know anyone that had done it and so it was really unfamiliar to me so I always I sort of took the safe option and you know became a lawyer but I chose to work in creative environment which was sort of the worst of sort of both worlds because I was you know the lawyer telling people they couldn't do things whilst on the other side people were doing you know the interesting work so I I felt like a bit of a a bit of a fraud really because I really wanted to be you know doing the interesting stuff holding the camera writing the script I actually started work in the music industry to begin with I never had sort of ambitions to become a musician I'm tone deaf but I always wanted to do something a bit more you know creative but really being a lawyer in that environment was was really the wrong thing to do um, in the end but I stuck at it but I always worked in film, TV, but, you know, as a lawyer. 
there's this concept. I don't know if you're familiar with Stephen Pressfield, the author, but he talks about this concept of the shadow career. And a lot of times as creatives, we enter shadow careers, which are kind of the shadow of what we really want to do. And just hearing your story, I'm, I'm thinking of that phrase, that shadow career, being in the industry, but not in the, the way that you wanted to be in it, actually, in your heart. Yeah, totally. I mean, when I worked in the film industry, there would be, you know, scripts coming across everyone's desk except mine because I was the lawyer that just, you know, had to deal with the contracts and things. And so it was it was a really interesting thing to do because I just thought, well, you know, you've just got to take a plunge and do what you want to do rather than stay in this shadow world. Well, I'd love to dig into that because a lot of people are probably struggling with that taking the plunge. So maybe there's some lessons we can learn from you. But before, as you're in that career, in working on films like Pride and Prejudice, in Bruges, and when you, you look at your LinkedIn, it says legal and business affairs. What does that mean exactly? What were you doing? If we were to look at a day in the life of you on set, off set, around set, what would that actually look like? Well, the film films are notoriously complicated things to set up. I mean, more complicated than a bridge or a sort of a building, you know, in terms of how many people come on board with financing. And so you've got you know, a film that's got a modest budget, but you might have 20 different financiers. So getting everyone to agree to every single bit of that jigsaw, it takes forever. And so what lawyers in the film industry do is just like turn endless bits of contract, paper and contracts over day in, day out and try and get agreement from the other side. And it's really unnecessarily crazy. I mean, you may as well be working on sort of infrastructure project or something that's similar that's the kind of financing that's involved it's not creative at all so it's a very um you know very strange world so you were on set doing legal and business affairs but at some point some point you started writing and I know you went on to do a master's in creative writing as well can you just give us some context about when the writing started to enter into picture for you I was always interested in doing a creative writing course and my career took a little bit of a turn. I kind of exited from the film industry for a while and I didn't think it was a course at The Guardian. It was one of the, when they used to run these fantastic, well, I think they still do actually, not just a masterclass, but like a six week, it was a six week course on how to write a novel. And some of them can be, you know, very variable and depending on who's taking it. And the guy that took the course that I ended up doing, it was um, a great writer called James Scudamore, who had actually been at UEA. Uh, he was incredibly sort of generous teacher and just a fabulous, you know, person to learn from as a beginner. And I think I just, I started, you know, just really enjoyed that part of the week where we went into the, did a three hour session. And um, I thought, you know, this is actually what I'm really enjoying doing. And then I... I ended up sort of going through this really horrible time at work where I actually became a whistleblower and then my life sort of turned upside down for a while and I was sort of thrown out into, you know, into the oblivion of having been a whistleblower and really not, and really just reassessing about whether I wanted to go back into that world again. And, you know, I just thought it was one of those moments that I think a lot of writers get, which is like, well, it's either now or never. This is what I've always wanted to do. And... It's the kind of, you know, the open road had just appeared in front of me and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a journey that I'd actually chosen, but I thought, I'm just going to do it now. I'm just going to start writing. So it was something that was sort of forced upon me, this decision. And as I said before, it was a little bit, you know, I I wouldn't have done it unless that moment had happened, even though it was, you know, awful. It was actually the thing that threw me into reassessing my you know, future, I guess. 
I wonder if you'd be willing, could you tell us, give us a little more detail on that moment? Because it sounds like when we were reading about the origin of your book, The Messenger, that this moment, this whistleblowing moment where you actually offered a chance to participate in a fraud, but instead you took the whistleblowing approach and path instead. Can you tell us, that might be a nice segue into the book and then into the writing. Yeah, it was a surreal moment where I... I'd actually just come back from maternity leave. And so I'd been out of the office for a while and I came back in and, and there were some things that were done incorrectly. And, and, and it just all, it started to, everything felt just a bit weird. And I I alerted my bosses to it. I said, look, you know, I think there's something strange going on on one of these transactions. And they said, yeah, we know. And um, I said, well, you know, it looks like it's fraudulent. And they said, yeah. And it was just a weird sort of Alec in Wonderland moment. And I just said, well, what do you want to do? And they said, well, well, we'd like you to sort of fix it for us, please. And, and what they meant, it was a long story, but what they basically meant was wanted me to participate and help them with it. And at that moment, it was just this very strange moment where, you know, they there wasn't a kind of an enticement, but they said, you know, we'll make this sort of very much worth your while if you do this for us. And it was just a very odd moment where I thought, actually, it'll be easier to go ahead with this. It'll be just, why don't I just do it? It's straightforward, like a lot of crime, financial crime. It is actually really straightforward. It's not like murder or something. And I just thought, you know, and and I, I just got obsessed with this idea that, you know, we're all just sort of seconds away from committing a crime a lot of the time. It can be one bad decision that you make and it changes life forever so it's but it happens so often and I was always just intrigued by that that moment where you choose to step over the line and that's what really hooked me into this book which is you know it's a series of people who have made made these decisions and they can't ever really go back from them again like you know it's no spoiler to say that the book opens with Alex and his friend Sammy, they hatch a plan to rob Alex's father and it goes wrong and, you know, Alex's father is killed. And it's that moment that, you know, Alex can never, ever go back from that bad decision that he made. And likewise for me, you know, if I had stepped over the line and committed that fraud, there would have been no going back. Even if I'd gotten away with it, it would have pursued me in my dreams and nightmares and, you know, my conscience. So I'm just fascinated by those instances in life. Wow. I mean, I, I hope many of us aren't faced with that. And I fear, you know, to think if you or other people have taken those that other path, it's a nice reminder. We're one second away from something really wrong, making a, a really poor decision. But I wonder, and you said that this became the window within which you re-entered writing. And at what point did you think, okay, this is something I want to try to put down into words. This is something that this is a big enough thing that I want to take a creative writing course and, and actually try to weave a story with this as a seed? Um, yeah, I think it was, again, it was a, a series of, of sort of like in retrospect, quite sort of, you know, good coincidences. At the time I, you know, had been flung out of the workplace and I had no real appetite to go back in having, you know, experienced what I had. And I had two small kids. My husband got a job offer to go to Paris and, you know, you don't say no to that. It was only going to be for a year. And I thought, okay, great, I'll go there and, you know, just sort of see what happens. And whilst I was there, I came across this story, which is a true story on which the messenger is based about, you know, about this boy who, and in real life, you know, he did actually kill his father. I don't think there's any doubt about that. 
But at the time, you know, my sons were at the same school as this boy and I sort of re- sort of heard about it through word of mouth and because the boy was a minor, it wasn't in the papers or really reported. And the more I got involved in it, the more I started, I just really kind of felt this sort of empathy for the kid, I think, because my sons, they weren't the same age, they were about 10 years younger than this boy was at the time, but they're at the same school, they're in the same environment, which was an an expat environment, foreigners in Paris, and this sort of sense of the outsider, I just got this real sense of what, what that life must have been like for that kid, and I started just writing just real snippets of things of, you know, what it was like for him at school, what his relationship with his father was like just strange sort of vignettes really and I remember I remember that's all they were at that time and I got intrigued because I've got two boys and I was very interested in their relationship with their father because that was you know unknown to me I I've I've got a sister and you know I don't know what male sort of familial relationships are really like and so I became quite intrigued by it and just tried to sort of you know throw myself into that sense of what it must be like for a, for a boy with father, a teenage boy, and just try to sort of get into the head of that space, I think, which now to me in retrospect <laughs> seems a really odd thing to do because, you know, it was really hard actually. And people would say, why are you writing from the point of view of a teenage boy for your first book when you're a middle-aged woman? It's crazy. <laughs> I think, you know, my answer would be that, you know, actually I don't think that we're, we're that dissimilar, age, sex, whatever, race. You know, there's a lot of common fundamentals in, you know, humans. And, and particularly sort of the teenage sort of years, I think, are really interesting. And it's interesting to tap back into that, you know, as someone, you know, quite a lot older. So, you know, I, I was quite intrigued by, you know, that. And actually, at some, some there were some things that came came to me very easily um, you know, that, and it's quite fun to let your to let yourself be that petulant, you know, selfish, spoiled teenager because sometimes it can be quite cathartic to write like that. To write like, you know, I tried not to read Catcher in the Rye, but you know, to write like Holden Caulfield, or you know, that kind of. Particularly when you're angry, it can be good to channel that person. Yeah, and I'm curious. I'm curious to just go a bit deeper into how you explored Alex's character. Had you written out any character traits? Did you have like a character profile written out? What were you using to help you construct this character? He's quite complicated. He's spoiled, but yet he's unloved. He loves his family, but he actually is so angry at them. And as you say, he's taken the wrong path. So, and he's, and the big uh, pull in the story is that he's trying to investigate his father's death because he doesn't think he knows it wasn't him. So I'd love to know anything about how you explored his character. Yeah, I mean, at the time, my sons, were, the oldest one was probably about 12 or 13. And, you know, as I said, he, they were at this expat school in Paris, which is quite a weird school. It was because it was for, um, you know, foreigners' kids. A lot of, you know, there were a lot of displaced sort of kids there and kids didn't fit in. And, and they all had these, a lot of them were quite wealthy. Some of them weren't. But, you know, I just became quite fascinated with the the kids that were slightly older. And so when I used to pick up my son, I just, you know, observe them. I'd speak to friends with whose kids were a little bit older, just trying to get to know them. And I just tried to imagine their lives. And sometimes I'd sit in a cafe where they were and just listen in on their conversations. In terms of the character, getting into the character, I, I, I think a lot of writers have this pattern where, you know, just say that a novel's 90,000 words long, you 
you write really fluidly for about a third of it and then you stop and you think, oh, God, where's this going? Whilst you're writing that third, you, you sometimes come up with an idea for the ending. So it's a, it's a real middle stretch which can be really hard going. And I heard about, have you heard of um, Alan Watt's book? It's called The 90-Day Novel. And he's got in there, it's quite, you know, these sort of um, little exercises that you do every day about delving into your character. And they are like, your, you know, what does your character, you know, have for breakfast? But they're, they're more sort of intriguing than that. It's sort of like, you know, the thing that really annoys me is, and then you write for several paragraphs in your character, and I, I found that that got me through a lot of that middle section where I was sort of finding it harder to sort of access Alex's voice in in a more precarious situations or what would he be thinking now? Or, you know, I, I think throwing yourself into the character by asking yourself those really granular questions, even though they can be quite tedious at the beginning when you're sitting up on your writing journey and you want to get just get into the story, halfway through, they can also be quite useful to do those sorts of things. That's really interesting. I wonder if we might zoom out a little bit because I realise that we've spoken about Messenger, but maybe we haven't asked you to do like a, an explanation of what the entire story is about. How do you pitch it when you talk to someone about what the story's about? Well, I always make it clear that it's set in, in Paris and it follows the journey of, of Alex, who's just been released on parole for the crime of, of killing his father. And he's, you know, he claims that he's wrongly convicted and he's desperate to prove his innocence and to find the real killer. And one of the key things about it is that, you know, it's clear that he didn't really know who his father was. And so part of the whole story of finding out who killed his father, he actually finds out who his father really was. And so it's a journey for him sort of, and that's where the sort of dual timeline comes in because half of the book is told from the point of view of Alex as a 24-year-old who's just come out of prison and he's trying to, to set about to find the murderer. And then it goes back in time to when he was younger, the leading up to the events where his father was killed. And so I wanted to sort of give this sense that, you know, he really didn't understand who his father was. They didn't know who they each other were. And in the process of solving the crime, he actually solves the mystery as to, you know, who the father was to him and, and what he meant to him really as well. So it's that is what I really kind of wanted to get across in the story. It's more of a family dynamic and you know how we never really as teenagers or children know our parents or the people that are close to us and it can be quite a surprise sometimes you know when we find out you know often when we're an adult ourselves you know the truth about what our parents have done in their lives it can be quite revealing sort of personally because you realize that you've taken on a lot of their traits without knowing it you don't know where those traits have come from they could have come from, you know, your own parents' trauma or, you know, something great that happened to them or a particular experience. You don't really understand where that's come from in yourself until you work out what happened to them. And so that was what, I think that's what sort of pushed me through the story in a lot of a lot of ways was this real curiosity that Alex had to find out who his dad was. And, you know, he started off, you know, wondering why he hated his father so much. Why did he hate him so much? He could never really understand why he hated him so much. And, you know, they didn't get on. His father was a bit of an alcoholic, heavy drinker, womanizer, all those things that, you know, they're, they're un, you know, unsavory for anyone, let alone a teenage boy has to live with him. And yet, you know, they were in this kind of, you know, like this toxic embrace together and they, they couldn't kind of get away from each other. And so I just, I found that really 
really sort of claustrophobic, but also really interesting as well to explore that. I'm really intrigued by the father figure and where you were inspired, where you were inspired from to write about this character who can be quite annoying for the narrator. This can be quite, he stifles his son, but also he's investigating corruption. He's someone who actually has a higher purpose. I wonder if you can talk us through the father figure and what he meant to you. Yeah, I became really interested in in war reporting, you know, like uh, just sort of like front end, you know, frontline journalism, you know, that real, I mean, I'm just not like that at all. I'm sort of really risk averse. And I, I just can't imagine going to a war zone and reporting on war or, you know, I mean, investigating corruption is one thing, but throwing yourself right into the firing line of something really dangerous was was really intriguing to me. And I was fascinated by the sorts of people that are drawn to that, you know, even people that work for NGOs in in war-torn countries and, you know, doing that kind of work. I was really interested in the, because I think a lot of those people have, have very complicated pasts. You know, a lot of them are, you know, have a relationship with trauma themselves that's quite, you know, intriguing. And I wanted to get under the skin of a character, uh, someone that has been, you know, investigating bad things and, and all their lives and to sort of see how that affected their own personality. And that and I knew a few people like that. And so they are based on a couple of individuals that I actually met, some journalists, because, you know, often journalists, uh, they can get burnt out and they can get sort of jaded from what they see. And, you know, we don't realise that. we You know, these journalists that have been reporting from the front line for 20 years you know, what's that like to that for them? And so that was the sort of character that I wanted to to build build Eddie around, this sort of jaded character who's seen a lot, but, you know, really can't stop, can't stop trying to make things better um, to the point where he actually neglects his own son. He's so sort of focused on, on the world. You know, he's an admirable sort of character from some points of view, but deeply flawed. And I love those sorts of characters. I love conflict and those sorts of Characters really intrigue me. Yeah, there's absolutely spades of conflicts. And that actually leads me to my next question. I've seen that there are comparisons made to Catch in the Rye and the Netflix series Lupin, Lupin, which are both very you know, compelling and intriguing stories. And I was just thinking, well, of course, a psychological book must have intrigue and yours has absolutely tons of that. And I'm curious about how you thought about it when you were trying to, as you say, you have these ideas of these characters you want to explore, but you know that you have to compel the reader to read on. So what were you thinking or what was your sort of philosophy on how you would weave us in, in terms of like holding the conflict steady throughout the book? I think I'm, conflict is something that really interests me in, in novels. And I don't think any of us really like conflict, but I think if, as a writer, I think it's really interesting to examine your own relationship with conflict. Are you someone that will fly off the handle and have an argument? Or are you someone that tries to sort of Soothe, soothe things things through because I think that really informs people's writing. I've noticed that in writing groups that I've been in, people that generally are averse to conflict can avoid it in their writing too. And so I think it's worth thinking about that as a writer. Actually, you know, do you what's because because I think for a psychological thriller is sort of all about conflict. And often when I've come to the end of a chapter and I think, oh, that's that was neatly tied up, I'll think there's something wrong. There's no conflict here. You know, there hasn't, we haven't had a moment where 
you know, an argument or, or, or you know, so I'll have to go, I'll go back and change it because I, on one hand, I, I'm quite comfortable with conflict. So, you know, I don't have a problem with doing that. But I think, you know, our natural tendency is to try and, you know, get to the finish line and think it's possible without, without putting it in. But I think you, you know, you really need to sort of inquire as to, you know, is this the most interesting route that we can take here? And then put a roadblock in there or put someone, you know, make it difficult. You have to like actively make it difficult. And I think for people that don't like conflict in their day-to-day lives, as a writer, that can be really difficult. Certainly, you know, I like books that have a lot of conflict. That I'm reading a book now, it's an old book, it's, you know, set in the 50s or 60s, but it's, you know, you can just tell the writer is not, you know, it's quite happy that the conflict has ended and they're onto a, a patch of, you know, where there's a resolution or a reconciliation. They're much more comfortable in that zone, whereas I'm a little bit bored and I want some more conflict. So it's really intriguing to hear you talk about how our own approach to conflict affects how we bring that to the page. That's sitting with me. Yeah. I wonder, you mentioned other other writers, people that I'm imagining these are the courses that you were on, that you see people who have different relationships with conflict. So for someone who's on the other end of that spectrum, who maybe doesn't like conflict in their life, and the feedback was, there's not enough conflict here. Is there anything that the teachers or you as fellow students did to help that writer kind of evoke more conflict or anything that helped them that you can recall? Yeah, that's a good question. I think just, you know, I mean, talking about it in the group and seeing what they thought about it. But I think a lot of the time, you know, those sorts of might not be writing, they might be writing a crime book or a thriller or, you know, so that the conflict is not necessarily, you know, that's what's so good about those being in a group because, you know, that they conflict might not be part of what they wanted to get across. And so that's, that was really interesting because it is for me, but it might not be for other people who are writing something much more literary, so, you know, that was, I think it was, it was just good to flush out what our own, you know, agenda was. For the, the... Yeah. It's such an interesting, I think this is the first time we've heard something like that, actually, Carl, that, yeah, which makes total sense, right? How you are in your life would probably influence how you are as a writer and then things you're comfortable with and not comfortable with. So it makes total sense. Yeah. There's so, an really... by, um, I think it's Tim Parks who goes, you know, who goes through various authors and, basically psychoanalyzes their work like Dickens and Lawrence and on the basis of you know what they were like as individuals and how that you know inflected their their sort of writing which is I, I find really fascinating actually yeah so now I want to ask really you what do you think your writing <laughs> your writing says about you well he actually came out to UEA and we could subject our writing to his analysis but I was way too chicken to do that I mean I I I don't. <laughs> oh, so funny. Cool. We'll grab a link. We'll share resources if anyone's curious about him. Really intriguing work. Yeah. I would love to talk about timelines because, you know, in the theme of conflict and feeding readers information, you've decided to go back and forth in time. The timeline's not linear. Can you tell us a little bit about that decision? Was that obvious to you that you were going to do that? How did you keep track of it? How important was that to you? I think it's I first wrote the story in a very linear fashion. It was about a boy who you know, killed his father. It was a true story. And at the end of it, I just thought, this is sort of too depressing. It's a downward spiral story. There's sort of no redemption. It was a bit of a, you know, for want of a better word, a misery memoir. And I thought, I don't want that to be the story. And so I think in terms of delving into, I think 
And it was also maybe it was influenced by, you know, this, this prohibition that we were supposed to have against sort of flashbacks about including, you know, big chunks of flashback in, uh, you know, an ostensibly linear narrative where the character just has this big, long flashback. And I think I sort of, I didn't want to do that because I think the prohibition against that is often, you know, for a reason because it sort of slows down the pace. And so I guess in the thriller, if you're writing a thriller, then, you know, the idea is to sort of keep the whole thing, you know, moving along quite quickly and very pacey. So I didn't want to have, you know, huge chunks of flashback as to, but I thought it was really important to understand what the history was of this family. So that's why I'd used a dual timeline. So we could, you know, so there would be a delineated moment where you would be back in the, you know, in the past tense story and you would be following his journey as a 16-year-old. So I think that was why I did it. And in terms of, you know, keeping track of it was really difficult because, yeah, I tried numerous different ways. I remember just sitting down one sort of rainy winter night and just cutting out on putting out on post-it notes what happens in each chapter and then getting completely muddled with that whole line of, well, I put them on my wall. But that was one thing that people told me to do and some people have done and that worked quite well. But in the end, I just kept a, um, I created a landscape document and I just um, sort of, I've had, I had this, I just have an outline of what, what happened in that chapter. And then I have a, basically two columns. And then the other column is, you know, what would ideally happen in that chapter, how I could improve it. And so I basically have, you know, Alex and Sammy go to Rob, you know, Eddie. And then I put little notes on the side saying, you know, what to include there, like things that inspired me or something, you know, that there was a dog or whatever. But so then I keep a running kind of track of what exactly each chapter said. And I've done that now with my second book. And for me, that's kind of the only way I can actually keep track of it all now. I, I have to, and then I, I keep referring back and I say, well, God, was that chapter, you know, 28 or 18 when they had this conversation? So it's, that's really important to me. I, I can't understand how a writer can, particularly towards the end of the book, keep it all in their head. Absolutely. You know, quite a few writers in our community swear by Scrivener, that piece of software where you can actually tag in columns. I don't know if you've tried that. I haven't, but I'd, I'd love to try it, but it's just, I've, I've never got around to it. I'll, I'll maybe next time. Yeah. But I wonder, we've talked about a bunch of elements around thriller, things that make a successful thriller. We talked about conflict. We talked about pace. Is there anything else, any other key elements that you think are essential for a really great, readable psychological thriller? I think like a really complicated character that's really just so kind of torn and, you know, psychologically complex, you know, the kind of Ripley character, Patricia Highsmith type of, you know, you're just never really sure what they're going to do next. They're probably unhinged and, you know, but you like them anyway. I think, I think it's, I think that kind of the sort of moral ambiguity is really interesting and important in a character. So that, for me, keeps me reading, you know, the kind of unpredictable character and someone with, you know, someone that's torn, that, that has dilemmas, that's really, that's a bit tortured. That's what gets me through, you know, like even if you go back and read the, you know, Bond, the early Bond books. I mean, Bond was a terrible character, but he did, did good things. But, you know, it's it's intriguing. He's an intriguing character. You know, those are the ones that I like. For me, that's really important in the thriller. Mm. What about story structure? Are there any methodologies you follow in particular with the genre you're writing on or just in general, any any favorite story structure methodologies that you subscribe to? 
I've tried, I, I do actually, you know, the 3X structure or the 5X structure. I've taken a, a quite a few rules from that. I think things like introduce all your characters quite early on, definitely before the end of the first act if you're using the 3X structure. I think that really works for the whole, you know, thriller genre you know, a really sort of plunging straight in, you know, that sort of dramatic structure really, really speaks to me. And that kind of helps me keep a kind of a grip on the narrative, you know, have the point of maximum chaos, you know, two thirds of the way through the book um, before the resolution. Just those sort of, you know, the three act structure works because it's got these real nuggets of things that actually, that makes sense. And it makes it a pleasure to read. You know, you don't want to like, you know, the sort of um, the villain appearing, you know, at the end of the second act, for example, doesn't work. So I think it's really important not to stick slavishly to those rules, but but to take from them, you know, what, the ones that work for you. And there are some that, you know, when you're reading through those lists of rules, you think, yeah, that's for me, that's what I do. And then others, you just say, no, no, um, you know, that doesn't work. So I think um, for me, you know, that that three-act structure really, really works. And I'll you know, I think you can discard it, you know, when you want it. But it's, it, I quite like starting off with with structure, with an idea of, of you know, when, you know, when something's going to happen. Um, mm. And you mentioned that this book started with little vignettes. And at one point, did you start to layer structure on top of it? Did you go back and then outline, okay, what is this story actually about? And if so, what at what point did that enter? I think I, the first chapter I wrote was actually, is now actually, I think, chapter three. And that came to me really quickly. And that never happens with my writing. It's really rare that that happens. So I kind of, I tried to channel that a bit. And then I'd go back and say, yes, like, what's his story really about? Someone gave me some good advice once, which was, you know, if there's a, a chapter that's clear to you, but it's in the, it's coming up or it's in the future and you're you're sort of like a bit intimidated by it, but you're putting off doing it, just do it, just get something out on paper. And that was really good advice. So, you know, the point of maximum chaos, for example, when, you know, or a murder scene or when they find the body or whatever, that, you know, getting that down on the page was, was it's really good, I think, because then you've got something to bounce, it, bounce off on. But, you know, I mean, I find writing incredibly hard. You know, it's like getting that first draft out is really like drawing teeth and it doesn't get any easier. But I know that I really like editing. So I need to, you need to get, you need to just open the veins and get it out because it's just, it's horrible. It's I hate it actually, but I really like editing and I love going back and I love knowing that I've got, you know, that I've, I've written 10 pages, even if they're in you know, rubbish. I've got that ball of clay and I can go back and and, and fix it up and, and make it into something else. So I'm just, I don't actually like writing, but I like editing. <laughs> I haven't heard many writers say they like editing. That's beautiful to hear. Yeah. I wonder, so we, we touched on, uh, I don't think we actually explicitly talked about it, but you took at some point, I think 2015, you decided to get a master's in creative writing. At what point in the writing journey was this with this book? Were you right in the middle, beginning? Where was that? I think I'd started it maybe a, a year into, I think I was at the vignette stage. I think I dotted a few things down. I had to write a chapter to get into the course. So I, I did write that, you know, so I did the six week guardian course and I just it really enjoyed that in the sharing of work, even though I'm quite a private person, I don't really like sharing things generally <laughs> just in general I don't share but it was a really good experience and I just when I came to the end of that I thought what now I'd like to do do something else and one of the other participants on the course mentioned the UEA 
course. And so I decided to apply to that as well because I just really enjoyed the workshop process. And that to me was what it was all about. I didn't sort of learn anything in the sense that I didn't learn any techniques that I couldn't have learned if I just picked up a book about craft. But what I really, what was great about the the creative writing course was the teachers were really experienced and they knew how to curate those classes, those workshops really well. And they knew how to deal with conflict, deal with, you know, people who were upset, people who were not happy sharing work. And so that was what I, I found really valuable about that course, just the workshopping. And exposing yourself to other people, exposing yourself to criticism and realising when you got home and started looking through the work and the notes that everyone's got a different point of view of where your work should go. Everyone likes something different, so you're never going to please everyone. And that's really valuable when you publish a book. You know, not everyone's going to like it. It's really important to understand that. And you don't ever really understand that until you're, you know, until someone tells you, I really didn't like it this week, or, you know, someone honest in the, in the class saying to you, that they didn't enjoy your work. Well, how do you deal with that? Yeah. And great question. I'd love to know, how did you learn to deal with that? And I'm curious of two things. Number one, what sort of prompts were they asking you to share with each other? Because for someone to say, I I didn't like that, it seems like a very unhelpful piece of Mm -hmm. feedback. So what were there questions or prompts that after you shared a piece of feedback that the listeners, the readers were encouraged to give back to you? And then secondly, how did you learn to discern the wheat from the chaff, what to take on and what to change and what not to. Yeah, I think it was more, you know, so if if someone said, well, they just don't like the character and they couldn't, and they just, look, I'm, not, I'm just not going to read this story because I don't like any of the characters in it. And, you know, that's one person's point of view and that they're entitled to that. They can, that's fine. I mean, I wouldn't, I would never say that myself, but there are people in workshops that do that. So you have to be prepared for it. And so the way that, yeah, I mean, I ended up in sort of like, you know, you hate the person. It's embarrassing because, you know, you wonder how many other people hated the story as well, but they're just too polite to say. And I think it, it it's, you never forget it, but it's always there in the back of your mind that someone can, you know, that doesn't like it. And I think that's fine to live with that, you know, that, I mean, I deal with unlikable characters. I do like, I enjoy reading stories about unlikable characters, but not everyone does. And so, I think that's important to remember when you're writing. So I, I don't think I dealt with it particularly well because I think I just sort of blanked the person and didn't. Re- I refused to engage with it. But now I think, you know, you know, I think that the best criticism that I had in those workshops was the, mu- the much more blunt and scathing criticism rather than the one people that said I liked it. If, if people say they like it, there's nowhere to go from. There's nowhere to. You can't really improve. You know, it's a bit sort of a bit of a dead end. But if someone doesn't like your character or, you know, has a reaction to something in there, you can work with that. You can step back from the work a bit and and see whether that makes sense. I'm curious if there's, was there any piece of feedback that had you dramatically change anything, either a character, a plot point, something about the language, anything else? I don't think there was. I can't think of, I mean, there was some great feedback that, you know, just someone told me in one of our workshops, oh, why don't you put the, you know, the, the scene where they go and visit the father, the, the sort of inciting, you know, incident right at the beginning. And that that changed, you know, that was someone's suggestion from a workshop. And that was, you know, that really unlocked the story for me when I had that at the front. I thought, wow, yeah, because that was that was sort of, you know, at the end of the first third of the, of the book at that point. And I thought, no, it's much, that makes much more sense to have at the beginning. So that was, 
that was a great, not a throwaway piece of advice. It was, you know, like she thought about it a lot, but it was, you know, it was really valuable, generous. Someone had thought about my work and, and it was really useful. Sometimes in, you know, the character, there was, there were points where I think you get so close to the character that you, you find it difficult to step back. So there were moments where people would say, oh, you know, I think, you know, they're not, not lighten up, but I think that there's a moment here where, you know, the character could lighten up a bit. And that was really valuable as well, because I think you are, you can become really blinkered to the kind of tone. So that was really useful, I thought. And so now I do that a lot more. I kind of, you know, I consider the sort of overall tone of my characters and where where their heads are at rather than trying to, because I think there's a real tension between trying to keep a consistent character and a consistent voice and then not becoming monotonous with it as well. And that's quite a difficult line to, to tread, I think. But, you know, workshops, I, I thought they were fantastic, you know, and I really, you know, and it'd be quite hard to set one up from scratch. And so that was what was really great about the creative writing course. And that was pretty much all that was great. I mean, you know, it was a really great course and everything, but everything else apart from that, you can learn, I think, independently. Yeah, I think a writers in our community definitely like workshopping their work as well with the other writers. I'd love to move to talking about what happened after you wrote your book. You finished writing your manuscript and somewhere along the way, I think you submitted it to the Bridport Prize. And at some point later on, you landed an agent. And I'm curious about, what that process was like for you, finding, submitting, finding an agent. Anything you can tell us about it? Yeah, well, I think um, the story isn't, um, it's not that intriguing. I think it was really unusual. I, someone, again, this is another reason why the Creative Writing MA was really great because they knew these little tricks like submitting your work for prizes, which I would never have known about if I hadn't, if I hadn't gone to that course. And so everyone was just submitting like mad to to all the prizes and so once I won the Bridport Prize you know I just got contacted by agents I didn't have to write to them which was you know very unusual so that was a great oh, that was I was so lucky um and so it was only it, I think I'd only written not, not very much about a third of the book at that point and so it wasn't ready to be sort of um submitted really And so then, you know, it took me another couple of years to finish it. Whilst I was at UEA, I didn't work on it because they said, you know, it's better not to work on something. You've already started trying to do something fresh. So I took that advice. And so I put it on on hold for a couple of years while I finished the course part-time. But then I, then we went into COVID and sort of the work wasn't really going anywhere and I was finding it hard to get motivated. So I submitted it for, I think I submitted it for other prizes, but I didn't get anywhere with that. And it got long-listed and then short-listed for Lucy Cavendish and then it eventually won that prize. Um, so after that, it, it had actually, the, the book was finished at this point. And at that point, that was when I got my agent because, you know, I didn't, having won two prizes, you did, I didn't really need to, you know, go on submission. I had, a, I had a great agent that actually approached me, one that I would have actually never dreamed of approaching because, I considered them, you know, way beyond my realm, really. So I was really lucky with that. And, you know, <laughs> kind of the only part of my journey in writing that was really very smooth and pain-free and really only because I won those prizes. It's really, you know, one of the biggest pieces of advice I can give to anyone is just just submit 
get yourself a list of when the deadlines are for all of these prizes and just keep going with it. And even, you know, publications, small prizes, you know, the kind of the flash fiction, the poetry, everything. Because the minute you've got that on your CV, people will look at your work and people will pick it off the slush pile and read it. And a lot of people are, you know, herd creatures and they want someone like something, everyone else will pile in and like it, and, you know. <laughs> so it's it really helps to get ahead of steam from those prizes and thank God they have them really. And here in the UK, there are so many of them. We're really lucky. That was a great piece of advice and it's one that I've always, I always tell people to do. Yeah, great advice. I'm curious about choosing your agents. I know you said you had a number of agents approach you. How do you know you made the right choice with your agent? when you were signing the contract? What were you looking for in them? Yeah, I um, I was a little bit sort of arrogant, I guess, because I thought, look, I've spent a long time as a lawyer, a long time in the in the sort of creative world, and, and I felt like I could I could go and get, do my own publishing deal. I could probably draft it or, you know, I just thought, what do I need an agent for? You know, really, what do I need an agent for? So I, I was a bit, I didn't really think about it too much, and then everyone said, oh, well, you know, you have to have, have to have an agent because, you know, you can't get a publishing deal without one. And I was kind of like, well, why not? Why can't we, you know? But, you know, that's the way the industry is, so you have to have an agent. So I didn't, I must say, I didn't really, I didn't see an agent as someone that would give me editorial advice. I saw it more as a sort of a deal maker, which is interesting. And I, I haven't really thought about this since, actually. So... And I think that that is something actually that agents do vary. You know, some do get, you know, get in deep with the work up to their elbows and, and really help, but some don't and they, they're just deal makers. And I think by the time I got to the end of my journey with the book and finished it, I did actually have a, had, had, I'd had a mentor that was part of the Bridport Prize. So I didn't feel like I needed too much editorial work to get it ready for submission. And I did that thing that everyone tells you to do, which is look at the, find the agents of the writers that you like. So I looked around and, you know, one of those agents approached me. So I just went with him and it was really lucky. I'm really fortunate to have this as an agent. And I. And who's um, your agent? Peter Strauss at Rogers College and Wine. And, you know, one of my favourite, I, I love Edward Sidorban. And so I just thought, look, you know, he's Edwards and Auburn's agent. He's good enough for me. And so, you know, I just, I was just so thrilled to, to sort of have him as an agent. So I, I, you know, I didn't do any kind of interviewing of agents, um, but I did, I did meet one agent, another agent, and I just didn't feel like he'd really engaged with the work as much. And so it, it's sort of, it's a real gut feeling, isn't it? And people say that someone said to me, it's a bit like, you know, how do you know when you renting a flat, buying a house, you know, you get a gut feeling or, you know, marrying someone. It's more instinct really than anything else. And I, the agent that I didn't have going with, it was, I just didn't really get a sense that he liked it very much. It was just as simple as that, you know. Uh, he wasn't that into it. And so I just thought, well, it's not really going to work. So, you know, I think you know when that chemistry is right. Mm, great. Well, thanks for sharing your your experience on that. A quick time check. So we probably have about five, seven minutes from us, and then we will turn it over to everyone here. So I do see some questions pouring in. If you do have a question for Megan, now's the time to put it into the chat. And in a few minutes, we will circle around to it. Hello, listeners. Just a note from us at the London Writers' Salon. Our interviews are recorded in front of a live online audience. And so at this point in the interview, we turn to audience questions. 
Would you like to be a part of the live audience and ask your own questions? Head to londonwriterssalon.com for more information. You can buy tickets to the online events or get free access to them as a member. Now, back to the interview. What does a good day of writing look like for you? You sit down to write. What's a good day? Yeah, sit down to write. Um, I've written a whole chapter by midday. <laughs> but that's, that's a good day. Never do that. Um, oh, yeah, I was going to say, how often does that happen? <laughs> never. So I, I think if I can get two good hours of writing in, that's a really good day. Two productive hours where I haven't you know, been distracted on my phone or on the internet, and I've just got into the zone. And, you know, I've, I've had sort of whole weeks where I've gone away and I've, you know, locked myself away, you know, with no distractions for a week. And actually, I don't really get much more done than that two hours, that two hours of really, really intense work. And so I've learned to be much easier on myself. You know, I just say, look, if I can have two hours free of distractions and see what happens then, and then I'll, I'll walk away from the desk and and that's it. I've done it for the day. So, you know, that is the ideal. And that's, that's kind of doable. And then I've learned to sort of give, to be a little bit less um, demanding because, you know, saying you've got to write a chapter a day, I mean, God, well, you know, that's, it's just, what are you going to, you know, I can't, I can't, you know, obviously you have to at some point when you've got deadlines, but, you know, when you're just trying to get into a rhythm of writing to sort of walk that fine balance between still being inspired to write and yet generating something at the same time, you know, you, you can't just churn it out. Yeah, I love the the reframe process versus outcome based goals. The two hours versus the amount of output. I'm curious how you mentioned keeping distractions at bay. Is there anything? What do you do to to make sure those stay at bay to help you have a productive um, session? At the moment, I just I get my phone in another room downstairs, you know, away. But I have got a lock <laughs> a lock box, so I've got one of those, uh, you know, those little uh, safe things with a timer on it. You can get from Amazon and all different colours, and you just set the timer, like, to an hour, and, um, you know, and then it, and you put your phone in it. <laughs> I love it. Isn't it hilarious that we need things like this? <laughs> Us humans. Yeah, love it. I well, trying the, is it, what is it, the Pomodoro method? Because some people swear by that, but I, I haven't done that yet. But I've just been kind of like. Yeah, we host something called Writer's Hour, which is a basically a Pomodoro for writing. So it's 50 minutes of silent writing, 100, 200, 300 people gather over Zoom. So you should join us, Megan, at some point. Yeah, yeah I, I will. So I'm curious, so is it correct that you're still, you're an associate at Spotlight on Corruption? So is that your, the day job right now? Yeah, yeah. How do you balance that with the writing? Well, that's, it's very, I do research projects on things that, for that job, or things that they need help with or that interest me. And so I can work on that sort of fairly intensely for a period of time and sort of then get that out of the way rather than trying to juggle the two. But with the writing, I try and try and do it in the morning when I'm fresh and then get on sort of after the, you know, two hours is done with the rest of my day, which is, you know, like a lot of admin or other kind of work that I have to do, other sort of legal work that I do. So it's actually kind of really good to have, you know, another job, you know, um, take my mind off it. And, you know, for those times when writing's not really going very well, the job seems really easy and it's something that I can actually do and that I can achieve and I can actually get something out, you know. So that's, you know, I don't think I could kind of write full time without, I think it would be quite difficult. 
for me. Such a refreshing take. No shame in a day job, you know, and yeah. it actually can help mentally. Well, I mean, yeah, thank God for the day job. Yeah, absolutely. We often have, we have writers we've talked to, interviewed, and they've said that it just takes the pressure off the creative work so they can enjoy the creative work and not worry about having to make a living from it. Yeah. Um, I have one final question for you. In, in our community, we often talk about negative voices in our heads. You know, we, we all have it to some degree. It can often stop us from doing our work. It might be that, you know, we're just not good enough or my book's not going to work or I should give up. And I'm wondering what relationship you have with the voices in your head, the negative mm. voices in your head that come in when you write and how have you learned to handle them, persist? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, you know, they come into your head when you're not writing, when you're just living as well, don't they? You know, telling you all sorts of things. Someone gave me a good technique once is is, is you kind of, you know, you imagine it like a, like a horrible little gnome or pixie or something on your shoulder telling you that what you've just written is just absolute shit and no one's going to read that and it's the product of a deranged mind and you should just give up now. So they said, like, you either turn, you turn to that little gnome and just say, you know, either F off and that kind of deals with it for a little while but then they come back. And then, <laughs> and then this is really weird, but then you sort of, like, enter into a dialogue with it and say well, what's shit about it? What don't you like about the work that I've just done? And they say, well, it's that last paragraph. They say, well, it's only a first draft and I'm going to change that eventually. And the voice will say, but it will still be shit. I don't know. You won't be able to change it. You won't be good. We'll never be good enough. And then you say, well, well, how do you know? It might be good enough. So I think having a little argument with that voice and like hearing it and giving it a bit of space so it can actually express your darkest fears and say, well, you know, and, and stop catastrophizing about it and that thing, see it down. Well, so what if this is going to be shit? So what? Who cares if it's bad? What will happen? What's the worst thing that can happen? And eventually I think you find that if you engage with that voice, for me, it's it diminishes. It's still always there, but, you know, it can be quite fun to talk to it. Yeah, I love it. I think that that's such a great way of exposing actually some of those blanket statements that we might say to ourselves that the little gnome might say to us that actually just hot air yeah and sometimes you might and also you can say well you can start to inquire well whose voice is that is that your mother's your father's your sister's your brother's or is it your husband's or you know because often it can be someone in our lives it can be their voice so I think that's really interesting to understand. It might even just be a friend that you really want to impress that's telling you that that's crap. So, you know, having that little conversation with them and then saying, well, you know, what have you done? <laughs> so I think it's um, make it into something a little bit less intimidating. Mm. That's beautiful. What a lovely reframe, Megan. Thanks for bringing that to us. Maybe final question. What's next for you? So you mentioned you're writing a, another book. What can you tell us about that, if anything? And feel free to, to not tell us anything, if that feels right, too. Yeah, uh, the, well, the book, um, I'm quite inspired again by the, um, you know, like I was saying about people that step over the line. I'm, again, interested in the world of corruption and people's sort of general complicity with that. Just, you know, in our world here in London, you know, I think, you know, we turn a blind eye to a lot of the stuff that goes on because we think it's part of the whole prosperity that we're all participating in. So it touches on those kind of themes about corruption and, and all of our role in it and how we're all kind of participants in a way to one degree or another. 
in perpetrating sort of inequality that goes on here. I see that quite a lot in in my work, and I think we've, we've all seen it in the past year with the sanctioning of lots of um, people, and then you you realise how much of it was happening in London. So I'm interested in that that world. I love the way you follow your fascination. I think that's what makes you know messenger so strong. So you're following your passion. So I'm really curious to hear, yeah, where you go with this second book. Maybe one final question from us before we turn over to audience questions. I'm just curious about what you would tell your younger self. So maybe five years ago, the Megan of five years ago, what would you tell her about what to expect about being a published author? It was once just a dream. And now you're in that place. What advice would you give yourself? I think um, sort of get ready to sort of, in terms of, you know, you have to really think about publicity for your book, you know, how you, that, that sort of business side of it, I think is really, is something that a lot of writers don't necessarily think about. And I think that's really kind of important to focus on a bit to, yeah, I think be prepared for it not to, you know, like you're not really doing it as a sort of a money-making enterprise. So find out what drives you about doing it and and making sure that that's something really fundamental because, you know, there's a long time, I think, a long lead time before you'll ever make any money out of writing. So it has to be a, a passion, I think, because that will drive you through those times when, the voice in your head telling you this, that, and the other. I think it's those sort of practical things. I think I, I probably wouldn't have ever told anyone I was writing a book as well, because you know people love to say, "Oh, how's the book going?" And you know, when's it going to be finished? You know, <laughs> when can we read it? It's uh, that drove me mad. So I would probably never tell anyone that I was writing my first book. <laughs> That's funny and great. Yeah, great advice, and I love the perspective. It is very interesting to, to hear that because we definitely have writers who, you know, hopefully be in a position where you are today. In the future, and it's good for them to hear from you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Megan. Where can we follow you if people want to oh, follow yeah. you on social media? What's yeah, the best way to follow your journey? Definitely follow me on Twitter. I've got a website as well, and you can email me via my website. Um, yeah, really happy to sort of make contact with people. Actually, that'd be great. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, for sharing your wisdom, your experience, and for the work that you do—not only the writing work, but the other work that you do—to help make this society a better place. So, thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again.